Well, good morning, y'all. <laughs> if you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4. While you're opening up there, uh, for any who are visiting with us this morning, my name's Jeremiah Thomas. I'm the pastor here, and I have had some excellent help this morning. I hope that y'all saw a few of them up here. Praise be to God for our covenant children. That is, those who are a part of the family of God. Isn't that good news that our Lord does not leave the smallest away from him, but brings them to himself? God is so good to do such things. Now, uh, while you're opening up to uh, Zechariah chapter 4, you know, when you get there, you're going to see this is the perfect Mother's Day passage. Golden lampstands, olive trees that pour oil into those things. It's Zerubbabel. Y'all have missed Zerubbabel, right? It's perfect. Uh, it is perfect. In God's good timing and blessing, here we are. And I think that we will find much, much blessing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which can be seen here. Uh, as we have been, uh, we continue to march through Zechariah, which is a prophet. And by the way, just to remind you, he had a contemporary named Haggai. This was a, a kind of a, 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 a two by two moment. These guys were preaching as the Lord would have it, sending them after the exile. So if you're thinking about where we are in history, uh, uh, God has, has brought his people home through some incredible circumstances on their own. Essentially, uh, the emperor says, hey, I didn't realize that y'all didn't get to go home, so y'all... Y'all get on now. Go home. And they're thinking, what, you know, what's happened here? So for 70 years they're gone. Now God has brought them home. But even in the homecoming, as you've been with us, right, it's been a heart check. Uh, things aren't exactly the same. The temple that was once so glorious, gone. Okay? All the stuff in it, gone. The walls of the city, gone. Everything is different. That's actually, if we just wanted to call a spade a spade, it's worse. It's worse. It doesn't feel as good as the history does, right? Let me just remember. And if I can remember the good old days, it'll be better than what it is now. But God says that's not where we are. We're here. And I want to show you something. I want to show you something. I want to show you hope. Because wherever God's people are, there is God. And wherever God is, there is hope. Hope. It's an integral piece of who we are as a people. You know, the world, they're not so hopeful. The world is actually quite cynical. Uh, they, they might say, well, I'm just a realist, you might hear. Maybe you catch yourself saying that. Well, I am a realist as well. And I am really telling you that there is hope in God. And on a day like today, I think it is wonderful for us to hone in on that. As our main point. And we're going to see it in his word. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4 verses 1 through 14. But that's the main point. There is hope in God. And that is very different than the hopeless world that we live in. That we are inundated by. The news. Social media. All of the different things that happen. Uh, how much hope can you find? There was a... Um, 
some kind of video that Rebecca showed me uh, by a famous actor who, uh, uh, Jared, uh, no, who's the guy in the office that did the Hope thing on YouTube? A little bit of, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, uh, of sunshine or something like that. John Krasinski is his name. And he, he's kind of famous for some comedy stuff that he did and a show called The Office. But, but he did this show. And it was a little bit of a little bit of happy or a little bit of joy or something. And and it was like a huge and, and giant success during COVID. And I can't help but think, how sad. A little bit of joy gets you that much popularity? What kind of world are we living in? A fallen world. One who needs hope. But not from John Krasinski doing a little YouTube video. I mean, that's cool. We could do that. But there's something deeper that lasts, that we can have and that we can extend to others. It's the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. We'll read God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for hope. You are the one who gives it. And so, God, would you give it this morning? Would you give us great blessing and joy and excitement? Uh, Lord, it is an exciting day. We can praise and honor you on this first day of the week for what you have done. We can remember mothers and all of the stuff attached to that, the good and the ill. And yet, Lord, we know that you are in control. We even know from your word that you reveal that motherly love. You show that. You show us the way in that. And so, God, help us, even from your word this morning. Reveal yourself. Change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Zechariah chapter 4. We'll start with verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, it stands, it remains forever. Thanks be to God. Two points this morning. First, the heavenly view or where our hope is born. 
Second, the view from earth, or where our hope manifests. First then, the heavenly view, where our hope is born. Verses 1 through 5, and then the second part of verse 10 through 14. You'll notice the structure. It's pretty obvious that someone just sandwiched it in, right? Zechariah, as he's writing, he gets this stuff, and there's a sandwich. You got uh, two pieces of bread, which is the heavenly view, and you got a little bit of meat in the middle, right? Which is the view from earth. So we'll take up that heavenly view first, where our hope is born. From the heavenly view, we get another vision that is certainly rich with meaning, uh, but cannot so easily be understood at first glance, right? When we take a look at it and think, where in the world are we going? with this one. A lampstand or something, eyes, trees. I get the pictures a little bit, but what are we doing in that? Well, uh, here, God reveals, as the point says, right, a, a, a view from the heavens, a cosmic reality, a picture, uh, a, a, literally a picture of these deep and vast truths that require a picture for us to begin to grasp them, because that's what God does, right? When we don't understand something as a father would to a child, his own children in fact, he seeks to reveal in a way that we can understand. And so we see this cosmic reality put into picture that we might grow, for instance, in hope. Now, uh, there's a couple pieces to this picture that if we break it down, it'll actually help us. We see the lampstand and the olive trees. It's no more complicated than that for the heavenly view. There's a lot of description, right, that kind of throws us for a loop, but it's a lampstand and two olive trees. And so let's look at that a little bit closer in our text this morning because that lampstand carries with it massive symbolic meaning. Uh, when you see a rectangle with, uh, with stars and stripes, red, white, and blue, and those stars representing what? You say, oh, the states. What about those 13 stripes? Oh, well, those are the columns, right? Uh, you, you know it, right? It's a symbol that we see, our flag, and we just know. We know that symbol. Well, the same thing would have been true for the people of God at that time. Lampstand? What'd you say? Yeah, I know that one. I know that one. Let's see what, what I mean. Verse 2, we see that this lampstand is gold and that a number 7 is attached to it. Uh, uh, gold at that time signified, as it does kind of now, right? Uh, a, a, a reality of purity, of, uh, of, of, of price, right? Of weight, of, uh, of treasure and riches and power. And, and so we see this lampstand is made out of gold and that should be unsurprising as we see it representing at the very least the power and the work of God and at the very most God himself, okay? And so we see that gold in verse 2. Likewise, we see the number 7. There are these 7 uh, uh, things where you see you have one flame right there. There's 7 flames. You see how that one has a little cup right there? This is the same thing. It would be like it's coming up. And then you had seven of these, right? Menorah is what the word is in Hebrew. Menorah. And you've got the little cups, the lips, to where the wax doesn't fall over the side of the oil, right? At that time, it would be oil. And so there, you have this light and this number seven. And remember what that number seven is, right? The number seven in the Old Testament, the number seven in the New Testament, it is representative of perfection, of 
completeness. And so we see, for instance, that creation happened in how many days? Six, right? But then God rested with the completeness on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. We see Jesus flip the script as he rises from the grave on what day? Was it the seventh or was it the first, right? The first day of the week. He redeems that reality. And after that work is complete, he rises up, right? And we see this, this Lord's Day moment, this first day of the week. But it's one in seven, right? Complete. A complete week. Now, there was a French philosopher. Uh, I, I don't want to use his name. Y'all can Google him if you want. I don't really like to give him that respect. But he said that, uh, this is an old guy, and he said that if, uh, if you could just take away the seven-day week, you could do away with Christianity. But before then, you will never get rid of this uh, heinous and frustrating religion that he thought controlled the people. You just can't get rid of Christians when you have a seven-day week. And they have somehow taken over the world with it. That's what he said. Sounds a little crotchety to me. Y'all can Google him if you want. Uh, but, but he's right. One in seven. You can't take it away. For the Lord himself has established it. The number seven. But then we also see that not only is there this number seven, there are seven eyes. Seven eyes representative then of a perfection, of a completeness. And yet these seven eyes in the second part of verse 10 of our text, uh, you'll notice that it's a new paragraph. These seven, talking about the lamp, right? Now we've got this vision where the picture gets a little crazy, right? The seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So not only is God now representing himself in power, in perfection, in completeness, but now... We see that these eyes are ranging the whole earth in perfection. God is not only powerful, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, he is all-seeing. And we see it in this, believe it or not, lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4. Now, there are a couple things that play out in here as well. I was just talking about this flame, right? The light. In the Old Testament, during the tabernacle era, uh, era, which was when they got out of Egypt, they exodus out, Moses uh, uh, led those people across dry land, and then God gave them a whole lot of stuff, the covenant of the law, and built into that covenant was a whole lot of stipulations on how God might be revealed. It's not the law for rule uh, following only, right? The law reveals God's very character. And that we desire then, after we are saved, to live as God desires us, that we might reveal the Lord. For we are creations of God in the image of God. Remember, it's not just simple rule following. But God gave a lot more stipulations. For instance, in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 25. Somebody can tell me if I was wrong, and I know y'all will. Uh, at the back, if I'm wrong, somebody look it up and nod at me if it's right. But in Exodus 25, we see this talk about a lampstand with six branches and one tree trunk. Sounds like seven to me, right? And that was going to be close to the Holy of Holies, in the holy place. And the priests were to keep it forever lit. The reason why is because it represented God's never-ending light to his people. Because he has promised over and over and over and over that he would not abandon his people to darkness. But he would keep them in the light. We know that God is the father of lights. There is no shadow or variation due to change, right? 
We know that God is the one who is unchanging, that when we are in the light of his presence, that things are well and right with the world, that we should flee the darkness. In fact, that as God works a work in us, we desire the light over the darkness. John chapter 3, the ones after verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. You know that chapter goes on with some powerful imagery of light. And we see that here in the menorah. The lampstand. But then that brings in the history, right? Because that light, that tabernacle, that temple, it was extinguished, right? Gone? Destroyed? Or was it? Likewise, we see the olive trees. The olive trees held deep meaning too in that time, uh, as well as now, honestly. Uh, but typically, uh, olive trees, uh, as you saw it in the, in the Middle East especially, they represented life and prosperity. Uh, you know, you would see the, we see it later, the sons of oil, those who have been anointed. That's what you were anointed with, is this olive oil. There's a deep reality of life and prosperity built into this, these olives, this fruit of the ground, these olive trees. And, and also, lest we forget, because we see it in verses 3 and 11, uh, these olive trees on the right and left of this lampstand, lest we forget, they also represented fuel. You know, you could burn olive oil right now. If you just bought a wick, went down to the store, bought a wick, set it in olive oil, it burns. It actually burns pretty clean. It's a little trickier because it doesn't burn off of fumes, okay? And so if it dipped into the thing, it would go out. That's why we don't use it anymore, you know? But, but there's a reality that, that that's the fuel that could be used, for instance, to light these never-ending lighting-up lampstands that reveal God and his unchangeableness. And so these olive trees, verse 12, have spigots. <laughs> It's like, uh, like, you know, if you wanted to use an illustration, a maple tree. If y'all ever seen you, you know, you tap a maple tree and you see the maple syrup comes out. It's incredible. I mean, it's awesome. That's kind of the image, right? These olive trees with these branches that are spigoted, right? They're pouring the olive, the olive oil right into the lamp. It's, it's never going to go out, in other words. Verse 12 of our text, we see that in chapter 4. And a second time, I answered him and said, so Zechariah, by the way, is a little confused, right? He's asking questions. What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out, right? So these oils coming right from the tree. Incredible, incredible reality. But, but the picture, don't get overwhelmed by it. It's simple, right? It's olive trees that are given the oil to the lamp to keep it lit. Simple as that. Don't be overwhelmed by what God has given us. These olive trees, they hold even more incredibly deep significance though as we see and as we transition into verse 14 because then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now you're thinking, wait a second. We have gone up a level, right? I had you with the lampstand and the olive trees with the spigots, but then when Zechariah asked what they are, they didn't explain it that way. The messenger, the angel, said that these anointed ones, what does that mean, who stand by the Lord? What are you talking about? Again, let's not get nervous. Who are the anointed ones? Is it Joshua the high priest that we talked about, by the way, just a chapter before? Is it Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel who is of the lineage of King David? In other words, you've got these two anointed ones, these two olive trees, right? The high priest on one side, the king on the other. That makes sense. Is it more general? 
Maybe it's a representation. Maybe it's not Joshua and Zerubbabel. Maybe it's high priests who served God in that way and also kings of the lineage of David who served that God in that way and who then revealed the Lord Jesus and God's work. Maybe it's more general or maybe it's more ordinary. Maybe it's more ordinary because in the tabernacle time and in the temple time, as a, as a priest, right, as a preacher, as a minister of God, one who has had hands laid on me, who has been anointed, as it were, one of my jobs would have been to walk into that holy of holies, glug, 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 pour in the oil. Maybe it's more ordinary. Maybe it's just two priests keeping the light burning like in the old temple days. Or is it all of these things shown from the heavenly view? Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. This is, this is the word of God. This is not my word. This is not a paraphrase. This is the word of God in Revelation. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Revelation 11 goes on to tell us their duty in verse 7. What is their duty? When they have finished their testimony. Their testimony. What is your testimony in the South? What's your testimony? Tell me your testimony. Youth, you know, that happens to us sometimes, right? Carpy, tell, tell me your testimony. How'd you come to faith? Give me your testimony. Testimony, witness, a reality of sharing that which God has done in our lives and around us as he has revealed it to us. A witness. At the very least, here in Zechariah 4, God is showing us that these olive trees are representing witnesses that bear testimony to the reality of God's power and work. Whether it's prophets, priests, or kings, temple, tabernacle, or table, God is being directly revealed. And this is where our hope is born out of. Because we are hopeless on our own. We can't do it on our own. And when I say it, I generalize into all of the stuff, right? It only takes a little bit of life for us to realize that we don't have it. And we try desperately to psych ourselves up, to tie the shoelaces real tight, and to keep on going. But every time, we fall. But God is there to show us that he is working, that he is powerful, and that he is moving on our behalf. And it's right there that our hope is born as we realize, wait a second, it's not over. There is a God and he is working. There's hope, a flicker, a never-ending flame that we look to and see and we cry out to him. And even as we ourselves begin to bear witness to this moment, this continuing and constant work of God from the heavenly side, we are then here in this world, right? That's where we currently reside. Not from the heavenly side, but from the view on earth. And that is our second point. 
the view on earth where our hope begins to manifest. Our hope is born in that heavenly place where God is working and revealing. And then our hope begins to manifest with boots on the ground as we are living these lives that are filled at times with pain and suffering and frustration and fear and anxiety and tumult and all of the other things coupled with then and smashed together with joy and excitement and contentment and happiness and peace and and all of those things toss and turn and swirl and we see it from our side and we think, man, what in the world's going on? And hope manifests itself out in believers. Verses 6 through the first part of verse 10. Slammed into, as I mentioned, this cosmic vision is an earthly reminder that true hope is born from God and true hope born from God is always translated into manifested hope here on earth for his people. When God speaks and reveals, he makes sure that his people have and are changed by such things. And so a word of God is spoken to Zerubbabel. And it might be good at this point to remember a few things about this man. First, remember, I was going to try to name my son, Carwin, Zerubbabel. I'm just kidding. Uh, the joke has run its course. Uh, no, remember who Zerubbabel is. All right, he's of the lineage of David, okay? He is, as it were, the king. But who is he from the view on earth? Remember, the view, the heavenly view, all you got to do is turn to Haggai. Look at Haggai chapter 2. Who is he? He is God's signet ring, which means he carries the full weight and power of God himself into earth. That's who Zerubbabel is. The view in heaven. What about the view on earth? He held a governorship rather than a kingship, even though he was of the lineage of David. In other words, he was politically weak. He held land given back to him and his people, even though it was rightfully his by birth. The only reason he had it is because it was given to him by worldly rulers and emperors. In other words, he was tactically weak. He had no military might. He had no muster behind him to do anything. He had no money and resources of his own. No bank account that was his. He had those things from the current empire and emperor who chose, as God would have it, to give him some things. In other words, he was economically weak. A weakling in the eyes of the world to be controlled. And God doesn't care about that at all. Verses 6 and 7 of our text. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. There is a moment where in the hands of God the lame leap, the blind see, the fool teaches the wise, and the weak are made strong. And this is done by God's actual presence manifesting itself, himself, in us, on earth, 
It's the Holy Spirit who resides in us. This is the true power of being born again. What does it mean to be born again? It's a little bit of a trope in the South. Are you a born-again Christian? Billy Graham came through and had a massive effect, a ministry. But out of that, certain individuals who did not feel that born-again reality jumped onto the bandwagon and said, yeah, I'm born again, something like that. Yeah, that is not the reality. The reality is that when we are born again by God's Holy Spirit, we are changed from the inside out. It doesn't mean that sin isn't with us, right? We're sinners. Y'all know, right? I know. We sin all the time. doesn't mean that sin is gone. It means that we are changed and we don't like our sin anymore. And we love the Lord so much. And we see in us new desires, things that we would have thought to ourselves, why would I even care about reading God's word? Or why would I care about going to church? Why would I care about tuning in and worshiping by the live stream? Who knows anyways until we're changed. And when we are changed, we can't help but be the people of God. No matter where you free, uh, uh, flee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. But you won't because you can't. Because the Holy Spirit resides within you and seizes you and changes you from the inside out being born again. It's the person and work of the Lord Jesus and it's affected in our lives. We change as the Holy Spirit seizes and takes hold of us and gives us that gift of faith, a gift of profession. Zerubbabel and God's people, they were facing so many obstacles in rebuilding the destroyed temple of God. They were facing obstacles from within, their own sin and struggles, heart checks, right? They were facing obstacles from without, oppositions from God's enemies, right? That's the homecoming. They're thinking, man, nothing's the same. But God reminds them of his power to see a thing through. Verse 9 of chapter 4. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It is from our view on earth. When we begin to have an eye on God that our hope manifests. When circumstances in your lives no longer inform you. When our own sin no longer prevails over you. But when God's powerful presence is both seen and felt, our hope flourishes and manifests. And like an unquenchable lampstand flame that is constantly fueled and cannot go out, the Christian rejoices no matter what. In all circumstances, rejoice. How? It's because our hope is otherworldly. Our hope flourishes from a heavenly place and manifests in us on earth. It's the Spirit residing in us. It's how we can rejoice at all times and in all places, knowing that God is working. Let me just give you two applications to close. First, not once but twice does the angel ask a question of the prophet Zechariah. Do you not know what these are? It's almost comical at first glance, right? Because you're thinking... I mean, how in the world are we supposed to just know that? You know, I mean, what? You know, he was sleeping, and the angel says, "Hey, buddy, hey, look, 
You know what these are? You know, and Zechariah's thinking, you know, wiping the sleep out of his eyes, trying to figure out what's going on. But in another sense, if we look past that and we begin to think about this critically, we must remember that we are not in Zechariah's shoes. That angel truly lamented. Don't you feel it? Can't you see it in God's word? Do you not know what this is? No, my Lord. Do you not know? This is it. This is where your hope is. Do you not know? We are not there though. Rather, we are in a time where Jesus has fulfilled all things. Where God's formal revelation by his word through his spirit is completed and closed of all people. We who believe after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus have the opportunity to bear witness to the birthplace of our hope through and by God's word. Jesus himself told us, aren't you better than a prophet? Us sitting here, you're better than prophets of the Lord. Zechariah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Haggai, Moses, all of them, you're better because you have more. God has given you everything that you need in this life, in his word. Powerful. Now, here are a couple questions. The application. Have you grown spiritually recently? And by recently, let's say one year, uh, three years, five years, and ten years, depending on age and when you've come to faith. Have you grown spiritually? Here's the second question. Do you actively read God's word? That is his revelation. That is where hope is born out in the heavenly places. Because those two things are connected. Here's another question. Do you struggle with certain sins where you know the wrongness of your actions, but you can't seem to help yourself? You can't seem to break out. Second question. Do you actively read God's word? Because those two things are connected. Third question. Do you have hope? Are you a hopeful person or not? Don't just say yes. Nobody knows your answer except for you. Why would you lie? Think about it. Are you truly hopeful? Depending on your answer, do you actively read God's word? Because they are very closely connected for the Christian. Now, one final application. There's one part of one verse that we have not covered. Verse 10, the first part. Let me read it for us and we're going to close with this. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Here's the question. Have you despised the day of small things? Do you despise the day of small things? The days of weakness, the days of tiredness, the days where it seems to go humdrum on and on and your head hits the pillow only to wake up again. Those days of feeling of insignificance, of a lack of power, of missing pieces and parts, of a lack of understanding, feeling like you're not in control. The day of small things. Ladies, do you think I wouldn't get to you? <laughs> It's Mother's Day, right? I usually do this. Some of you are being celebrated today. 
Some of you, guys too. Some of y'all are mourning. Some of you are content. And some of you are discontent. A holiday like this is not always so easy. Even if Facebook and commercials and the things that are trying to sell you stuff make it out to be. Where are you on the small things? Mothers. Those who have lost. Those who love. Those who are continuing to love. Those who are being celebrated. Those who are discontent. Those who are content. All of us, as we think, where are you on the small things? When I talk to Rebecca, when I talk to my own mom, when I talk to mothers in our congregation, being a mother can be a lot like looking at the small things, right? Father's actually not far off. But for the mother, where are you on the small things? God gives us so much. And he tells us that we should not despise that day of small things. And yet we so easily look over such. I was reminded of a sermon that Dale Ralph Davis preached some years ago over at First Pres. He is a fiery pastor, one who might rival myself for intensity. Um, surprisingly so. Uh, much louder and much wiser than I. And as he was preaching a sermon on Ruth, uh, there was a moment where Boaz gave Ruth an ephah of flour. It'd be like knocking on your neighbor's door. You got a cup of flour? That'd be like that. So you, she would have it like this. And it was a lot of flour. It was more, way more than a cup. But can, you ha can I have some flour? You know, can I have some food, right? I'm going to make some bread. And there was this application that he gave. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't miss out on the ephah of flour. And God gives you so many small things. If we want to close our eyes tight, God will pry them open for those of you who believe. If you want to stay joyful and forget that there are those that are around us mourning, he will wake us up to that, that we might laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. He will well round us if we are mourning, thinking there is no hope in this world anymore. Because hope is born from the heavenly places, not from this earth. And it manifests in his people by the Holy Spirit, who is God, and who has started a work. And if a work is started, a work will be completed. He will see us through. And he is giving us a hopeful moment here where he tells us, do not despise the day of small things, but... Even if you do, even if you do, you shall rejoice soon. Do you see that? First part of verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. He doesn't just say don't, though we should not. He says, if you are, I am coming for you. I am coming for you. I am coming for you and you and you. I am coming for my people. And you will rejoice. You will rejoice with a birthed out hope that you can't even imagine right now. But I am God and you are my people and I will not leave you. I will neither forsake you nor leave you. I will keep you in my steadfast love forever. And I will keep your children 
and I will keep your children's children, and I will keep your children's children's children to the 100th generation, which means all of them, because they are mine, because you are mine, and because I am working on your behalf. I have sent my son, and if I have sent my son, if I have given Jesus, how then will I not give you all things? And so, even if you are despising today, dear ones, you will rejoice. Take hope. And I would encourage you, do not despise these days, for God is working. He has birthed out hope in the heavenly place, and it manifests in his people, even today. It's why we sing on Sundays, and we're going to do it after I pray. Let's pray now. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are one who, even when we are despising, even when we are sinning, even when we are seeking to run away, to look away, that you tell us we will rejoice, that you give us good news nonetheless. In fact, it's why you give us the good news. And so God, for those grieving, for those in pain, for those joyful, for those in total contentment and in total discontent, Lord, you are our God. And we unite with one voice singing your praise for you are the one who gives us hope. And you give us hope in the Lord Jesus who bears it out by the Holy Spirit even in our very hearts. Oh God, thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.